Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge, uh, first off, that we are meeting on the traditional country of the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains and to pay respect to Elders past and present. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land and we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Kaurna people living today. I'm Jo Case and I'm the Deputy Editor, Books and Ideas for the Conversation. I also write a books column for Adelaide's In Review and am the author of a motherhood memoir, Boomer and Me. I'm really delighted to be here today on International Women's Day to talk about motherhood in fiction as explored in two novels, Alice Pung's 100 Days and Ali Richards' Small Joys of Real Life. And you can see both of those novels sitting here. I'm just going to very briefly give you an overview of both of the books and then officially introduce uh, Ali and Alice who will be popping up on the screen. Um, we're going to have a bit of a conversation and, in, and as part of that conversation uh, I'm going to get both of them to read from their books a little and give you a bit of a taste of them. Uh, so that's how we're going to go today. Alice Pung and Ali Richards' protagonists each find themselves unexpectedly confronting motherhood. In Alice's 100 Days, Karuna is just 16 when she falls pregnant and hostage to her Filipina-Chinese mother's controlling behaviour and general meanness, even as grandma's resilience saves them. In Small Joys of Real Life, Ali's Eva sees her hopes for a new relationship with Pat dashed when he dies by suicide, never knowing that she was carrying his child. The pregnancy becomes a catalyst for Eva to transform her life. These two books inhabit very different Australias. And one of the reasons I'm excited to be talking to them both about these books today is that there are so many commonalities and so many differences, um, which I think will make for a really interesting conversation. Um, in Small Joys of Real Life, Eva's world is gentrifying inner North Melbourne with its share houses, cub, uh, share houses, cafes, pubs and bands, Northcote, Thornbury, Preston. Everyone has a university degree, or just about, and the dream is a nice place to yourself with a record player and a vinyl collection. In 100 Days, Karuna's world is a housing commission flat in Richmond. Her mother dreams of saving enough money to buy them a house again, like the one they lost when Karuna's father left them. And her mother lost her beauty salon business for brides, as divorce is seen as bad luck. Eva snorts lines, very occasionally. Karuna sniffs whiteboard markers, very occasionally. Eva's housemate works from home when she's hungover in a cushy advertising job. Karuna's mother works a day and a night job to feed them both in a restaurant, kitchen and a salon. And when pregnant, Eva does one advert for a lot of money and otherwise lives off her savings. Karuna goes to work in a salon with her mother, mostly to keep her supervised and under her mother's eagle eye, but also to put aside money for when the baby comes. Both of these books are characterised by depth, complexity and hope intimately inhabiting the worlds and lives they explore with vivid details. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to them both about them and their contrasts and commonalities this afternoon. 
So just before we launch into actually hearing from Ali and Alice, I will just uh, do them the honour of introducing them. Um, Alice, uh, who's joining us on screen, is an award-winning writer based in Melbourne. Hi, Alice. <laughs> she is the best-selling author of the memoirs Unpolished Gem and Her Father's Daughter and the essay collection Close to Home, as well as the editor of the anthologies Growing Up Asian in Australia and My First Lesson. Alice's first novel, Lorinda, won the Ethel Turner Prize at the 2016 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. 100 Days is her most recent novel. Alice was this year awarded an Order of Australia Medal for Services to Literature. Please join me in welcoming Alice from Melbourne. And Ali Richards' short fiction has been published widely in Australian literary magazines and anthologies, including Kill Your Darlings, Best Australian Stories, Best Australian Fiction, Best Summer Stories, The Lifted Brow, Voice Works and Australian Book Review. Small Joys of Real Life is her first novel. It was shortlisted for the 2019 Rochelle Prize for Emerging Writers and the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an Unpublished Manuscript. Ali lives in Melbourne and works as a theatre lighting technician. Uh, please welcome her to Writers' Week. Okay, um, I'd like to kick off with a question about pregnancy and motherhood as transformation. And um, I'll direct it first to you, Alice. Um, Karuna says, at least I'd have something of my own in deciding to keep her baby and it seems she's looking at the baby as a way to gain autonomy and separate from her mother, though in a way it actually also binds them more closely. Um, and it also seems like for her it's a chance to do motherhood differently. I wonder if you can talk about that, Alice. Oh, sure. Um, so Karuna's been brought up by a very controlling mother and um, we don't get a sense of why the mother is so controlling. And I loved how at the start, Joe, you mentioned that the mother has, you know, these bouts of meanness, which um, as a 16-year-old, Karuna can't stand. You know? <laughs> Most of us would have had uh, a bout of rocky relationship with our mothers at some point during our teen years. So Karuna is trying to separate from her mother. And this is a book um, about love and control. Um, mm. The pregnancy is just a way that this is manifested uh, for a working class girl, you know, for, maybe for a girl who is not working class, a middle class girl um, might m try and control themselves through um, their intake of food or, an, you know, eating disorder. But uh, when I was growing up, um, a few of my friends, uh, not necessarily themselves pregnant on purpose, but not entirely by accident either because, mm. you know, they, they knew what would happen. They, they weren't silly if, if you... Um, if you had unprotected sex. So Karuna's uh, way of maintaining some sense of personal autonomy was to um, get knocked up. And I, I see this with uh, a, a young, you know, lots of young women who are pregnant, not necessarily young teenagers who are 16, but even 18 or 19-year-olds. You, you might be inconspicuous. You might um, notice that no one cares about you. But suddenly when you're pregnant, even as a 19-year-old, all these systems are activated. You know, you've got doctors, yeah. you've got nurses, social services who help you. Um, 
if you're a teenager still at school, suddenly uh, teachers and um, you know support workers descend upon you and have this plan to keep you at school as long as can, which otherwise wouldn't have happened if you just drifted by and <laughs> hadn't got yourself in this state. And people treat mothers differently, you know, even if they're teenage mothers. Mothers are considered somewhat special in our society um, until they have toddlers and they are still teenagers and then they are considered um, uh, doll bludgers and, you know, <laughs> all sorts of terrible things. Mm, mm. That that's so. There's so much that's very interesting in that, Alice. And um, I think that <laughs> that idea of um, of having a child and subconsciously wanting that descent of attention to you, and that you know the way that it, it necessarily demarks you as someone, like you said, motherhood, most worthy of respect, or um, uh, yeah. Uh, is is that some so is that something that you were particularly keen to explore in the book then that idea? Oh yeah, that um, that idea I, I was keen to explore. But the other thing, and this comes from personal experience, I'm the oldest of four siblings, and um, mm. there's quite a big age gap between me and my younger um, siblings. So I was responsible for a large part for looking after them while both my parents worked and. To kill the hours of boredom, um, when I was 16, I used to take them to the, the local shopping centre called High Point Shopping Centre. The, the looks I would get because people thought I had these two very small, one that was a toddler and one that was um, four years old, these, these kids, even um, <laughs> young women my age who, were, who had jobs at the um, supermarket would give me dirty looks like, oh, you know, you're breeding so young. Um, and so that th there was a, a point where I thought um, that, you know, motherhood is not for specific people because mm. when I had my first son, I was 34, um, I was walking home from work in my suit because my, my other job is I, um, I work as a legal advisor and um, I was very pregnant with my second son and this builder um, who was building you know, something in Parkville looked at me and he was going to talk to me and I was like, oh, no, now he's going to say something about these refugees breeding like animals because that's what we kind of got, you know, <laughs> the sentiment. And he turned to me and he says, good on you, good on you, you are amazing, you know, you keep that up. And I what? felt really good. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, oh, he's is." You know, breeding refugee, and I think it has a lot to do with um, class, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Um, and I have to say, just uh, personally, I had my child when I was 23, and I looked very young, and I also, I yeah. got those, like, Oh, looks you got those looks. I, so I know oh, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when they're toddlers, it was worse, probably. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Whole conversation for another time, perhaps. <laughs> um, Ali, I I thought what was very interesting about um, about Eva's path to to becoming a mother. Um, she also falls pregnant accidentally, um, but makes a really deliberate decision to keep the baby, um, knowing that there are other alternatives. And I wonder, I'm really, it was really intrigued by her decision, especially I think, like, like what made her decide to do that, especially when she didn't have um, 
when the father wasn't around anymore. Um, and Eva pretends for a living. She's a professional actor, and she describes acting the part of herself in real life too. And I wondered if you thought that having a baby for her is a way to anchor herself in her, her life and make herself more real. Uh, yes, that's the, <laughs> the short answer. Um, a large part of the thematic content of the book, which I didn't set out intending to write about, but realised after I'd written it, was something I'd observed in my own friends, which was essentially a, an intense depression that everyone got about two years after they started their career. Mm. And I think it, I reflected on it and it, it sort of felt as though you go through high school and the whole time it's sort of like all leading up to your adulthood and they're always preparing you for adulthood and especially near the tail end of your schooling, they always ask you what you want to do when even... I mean, people ask kids who are to that. Mm. Um, but, it's, you know, the tail end of your schooling, you're all preparing for a career and so you sort of... It sort of makes that feel a bit less legitimate and as mm. though your real life's going to begin after. And then if you go to uni, you actually reset that process and yeah. it's seen as this big coming-of-age kind of thing for people to do, but you're still waiting, you're allowed to float and mm. um, do what you want. And then people find careers, whether it's what, the one that they thought that they would or something different. And then I think a lot of us sort of thought, oh, well, is, is this it? Like, what am, am I just going to work until I die? <laughs> um, <laughs> so and kind of what next? <laughs> yeah, or yeah. like how do I, um, I'm, like how do I find joy in this for the rest mm. of my life and where is the joy in my life coming from and in some ways having a baby is a way to reset the narrative mm. um, and if you're not going to have kids you have to think of some other way to do that but I, I think mm. essentially Eve is quite depressed yeah. in, for all the book mm. and she's unhappy in her career and then this wild thing happens and so she just decides to go with it and it's actually very reckless um, yeah. and it's interesting one of her friends um, appear, partakes in more reckless behaviour that we more commonly think of as reckless, which is like drug taking and over getting blackout drunk and things. And not many people have actually asked me about how reckless it is for Eva to do what she's done, which is like... Really? Yeah, you know, quit her job and have a, become a single mother Yeah. when she doesn't have necessarily like the stability there. So wow. I think she's thinking, even if, it, even if I'm miserable, it'll be different from now. Yeah, yeah. That really interests me because I have to tell you that I did wonder that myself and maybe that is because, I don't want to keep talking about myself, but because I accidentally had a baby at, well, I got pregnant at 23 and had the baby and, um, but I had a partner around and like, she doesn't have a partner around and she doesn't have a job and I just thought, yeah, I, I was int really intrigued as to why she made that decision and, um, and I did wonder if, how much you also thought that it was an incredible thing, like, reckless thing to do, and obviously you did. What, what was it that made you want to write that? Because it is quite unusual. Um, I mean, yeah, so, yes, I mm. did think it was wildly reckless. And I think, um, I mean, I'm 32, <laughs> and there's a lot of propaganda, um, fertility propaganda that mm. happens when you turn 30. I guess having had kids really young, maybe you didn't experience that so much. But <laughs> So now everyone's telling me that like, my eggs are drying up and yeah. I'm also in like a long-term heterosexual relationship, so people are constantly asking me if I'm getting married and having a baby. And mm. I don't think there's been a 
day in the last four years where it hasn't been on my mind. It's this massive preoccupation of mine because one part of me really wants to do it and one part of me doesn't mm. and I'm constantly mm. pulled and some days I feel this overwhelming emotion of like, oh, of course I'm going to do it. I, it's my calling in life, I really want to and other days where I'm like, oh, I'm not. Uh. Thank God I can stop worrying about yeah. this now. <laughs> and yeah. then it's just... Um, but I think when I actually came up with the premise of the novel, I was single. And when you're single, it's a different question you're having in your head because the options aren't, I mean, yeah, the, op the options are different. Um, so, and I would sometimes think like, oh, maybe if it accidentally happened, I'd just go with it because it might be my only chance maybe mm. unless I wanted to go down a more expensive route yeah. of IVF or whatever. Um, yeah. But I... I don't think there's any way I'd be able to do what she's doing. I'm not that brave. That's so interesting. So it sounds like writing it was also a little bit of a process of working out some I, some things that have been in your head about about having children or the imperative to have children or what if and yeah. That's, yes, that's I didn't come up to an answer though. So no, <laughs> I still well, don't know. I, I don't know about you, but I feel like often the best novels or the best thing, you know, works of non-fiction are things that don't come up with an answer, but just explore things and leave it kind of messy because that's life. So, um, I, I I thought it and it's quite interesting that Alice, you've written about pregnancy as someone who's had three kids. So absolutely, you know, you've experienced it. Um, and then Ali, obviously, you're writing it as exploring how it might be. Um, and But you both explore it in... I, I really thought the, de the detail with which you do it and the way you both really debunk the romance or the myths about pregnancy and motherhood, um, exploring it through your narrators. Um, and I wonder, is that, maybe I'll ask you first, Alice, is that something that you wanted to do with the book, was to, to kind of debunk, debunk myths and show it, um, strip away the romance of pregnancy and motherhood? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, no, there are plenty of books that already do that really mm. well um, by, by more experienced writers uh, about motherhood. Um, so I, I was writing a book uh, and my main focus was the teenage girl mm. and her quest for autonomy. Um, but having said that, you know, pregnancy is a very visceral thing. And if mm. you're feeling it for the first time, everything is in technicolour. Mm. And um, so that's what I convey. The other thing um, is that there have been movies made about pregnant teenagers and the first one I can think of is Juno, which is a, a really yeah. charming film <laughs> with Ellen Page. But if you look at that carefully, she's a wisecracking teenager. You know, her, her sentences mm. are funny. She has, um, she's witty, she's sophisticated, she's clever. Realistically, a teenager who's pregnant um, and exhausted and um, feeling a bit oppressed by your mother or, you know, by your life circumstances, you don't have that charming personality. You don't have mm. that nice crafting persona. Um, if you read the book carefully and count the number of lines where you actually hear Karuna speak, it's mm. deceptively few. Mm. You're hearing her thought. You hear her voice through the whole book, but she has a very um, tiny speaking part if you were to picture this as a film. So yeah. I wanted to portray what it was realistically like for a teenager to be uh, in that state. Mm. Yeah, no, that's true, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but it is a very interior novel, and I guess the fact that um, Karuna's alone a lot of the time as well, obviously, you know, 
she doesn't have people to, you know, part of what she's facing is feeling very alone in the world, so that makes sense that mostly she's talking to herself. Um, uh, what about you, Ali? Was that something that you were looking to explore in the book, that, you know, debunking myths about pregnancy and motherhood, or was it like Alice that that, that just came out in the writing because, you know, it's not very pretty and... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so for me, I had to research what it was like to be pregnant, which in mm. some ways is very easy because there's a lot of information out there about it and there's a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Yeah. <laughs> I also watched Juno. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a few things I watched. I was trying to find pop culture that follows pregnancy quite closely and there's, mm. as much as I think there is the like really common ideas of pregnancy in, you know, morning sickness and stuff. You feel like you've seen it everywhere, but I was trying to find ones where they really go, like, the whole, every month. Mm. Um, and there was, like, Juno and Knocked Up. Oh, knocked yeah. Up, not good. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Very problematic. <laughs> but, yeah, obviously I wasn't, like, I'm going to debunk the myths of pregnancy because I don't know what the myths are still because I haven't experienced it, but it was really just speaking to everyone I know who has mm. been pregnant. Um, my sister was pregnant at the time that I was writing it, which was very useful for research. Mm. And she just hated it. She was miserable. Yeah. I've got another friend who's pregnant at the moment and, yeah, she's, like, feeling sick all the time and really tired. <laughs> and It's yep. just not... I didn't meet anyone who was like, I feel so in touch with my body and really good and <laughs> I'm not scared about the future at all and mm. it'll be fine, like... <laughs> Like no one said that, so it didn't get in there. Do you know that's a good that's a good point that I but I, I feel like you see that represented in the media a lot of that, you know, like, oh it's such a magical time or I felt so good, you know, while I was pregnant and but I don't actually I know one person who actually felt that way in real life. So it's um yeah. one of my friends was I was talking to her recently about it and she said that there's this thing about it being natural that everyone's mm. like it's natural and they try and say that as though that means it's really good and it's like well COVID's also natural <laughs> like there's lots of natural things that cancer's natural like yeah. that it's not actually a good term inherently good term no that's so true that's that's and actually like I I noticed that when I was reading that both of your narrators overtly compare pregnancy to a horror film like, there's a little passage that each of you have. Um, Karuna, in one of the few parts where she is speaking to someone else, she tells her friend, who is a real romantic, and is like, oh, and what about this guy? She says to him, I felt like chucking out my guts for a whole month. I've peed my pants walking downstairs. I've been stung by a Dettol and had needles poked in my arms. This isn't a romantic comedy, and he's not the lead. This is a bloody horror movie. And then Eva thinks to herself, being pregnant is like living in a horror film. First the thing <coughs> possessing you tries to escape from your mouth. Then it pushes in every direction, expanding you from every angle. Then the finale, all that blood. Um, I just thought that was quite <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> Eerie that you both made that it used that exact term, but it made sense too, like natural, supernatural. Um, uh, Alice, I wanted to ask you about the idea of authenticity in 100 days um, because Karuna is really allergic to inauthenticity, to pretending. Um, for instance, she slowly realises that her father says the lines of a doting father but won't do any parenting that's not easy or convenient and that's a really tough 
thing for her because she has idealised him for quite a while. Other adults in her life say things about looking out for her, but, but they, don't, they won't come between her and her mother. And I wondered, was that idea, how is that idea of authenticity important to 100 Days? Oh, it was really pivotal to 100 Days, Jo, and I'm glad mm. you asked that. Um, it, it's a very visceral book. There's blood and guts in mm. it. Not to um, shock and all people at all. But just because um, my experience growing up, I, I had no romantic notions about pregnancy because my mother, I saw her pregnant mm. um, and she got very sick. Uh, at one point she had what Kate Middleton had, you know, oh. uh, vomiting, she was on a drip. But what what made that worse was that she was an outworker and she did sew clothes, which is bad enough. She made jewellery. So she was dealing with really dangerous chemicals like mm. potassium cyanide and inhaling all this crap while she was pregnant and we didn't think anything of it. She would throw up so many times a day. And as a kid, I just remember, you know, if she threw up, um, my job was to clean it up. I loved my mum and she loved me. So that was nothing, you know, <laughs> it wasn't that big a deal. And then when my siblings came, but um, toddlers don't understand where things belong in the world. So one day you might find peas in your laundry basket, you might find a poo in a shoe. So, so everything is... Um, <laughs> Everything is kind of messy and, and crap, you know, in, in this housing commission house. And that's what I wanted to convey. So Karuna's not a romantic. Um, there are some teenagers who are, and there are some who just have this clear-eyed vision of what adulthood would look like, and it's mm. not pretty, and this really um, tacit understanding that adults will probably fail you because adults are fallible. Mm. And that's the sort of protagonist Karuna is. I don't think she's a hardened surrealist and that's what I wanted to convey um, because you know, I think the older I've got, um, the more the more softer I've become. There's mm. a beautiful line by Bob Dylan who said, oh, but I was so much, um, I was so much uh, younger then I, I know less than that now or something you know when yeah. when you're young you think you know everything as you get older um you don't but it's the inverse for me um when I was young life was really difficult and the older I've got the easier it has become mm. but I'll never forget like so um adults can tell teenagers all sorts of things you know yeah. um for example i meet many mothers at schools who who are nothing like mother who tell their daughters they're beautiful who love the you know you can be whoever you want mm. and then these mothers will be eating four lettuce leaves or something while they're talking to their daughter and yeah. and you think oh you know they just know what's going on they, they know about <laughs> weight issues so yeah, that was teenagers are smarter than adults give them credit for. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And kids as well, like you say that. So, and that is one of the things that actually in both of your books I really liked was the narrators were really keen observers of hypocrisy or not even like deliberate hypocrisy but all those small things like what you just um, outlined, Alice, you know, and the ways in which they're watching people um, enact themselves or, you know, try to present a version of themselves. Um, can, can you maybe talk about that in, in your book, Ali, that, um, that idea of, you know, um, uh, characters enacting themselves? I mean, obviously, Eva is an actor, but she's also watching people like Travis, you know, her, her, um, who is the 
best friend of Pat, the father of her child who died by suicide, and she's kind of watching, seeing the gaps between who they're trying to be and who they really are. Yeah, and um, yeah, as you say, Eve's an actor, so that's her job, is yeah. to try and dissect human emotion and the ways that people, um, people act. And it's sort of depicted in the book that she says she's not very good and she hates it. And I think she's going to leave acting and go on to like something that she enjoys more. But I think that um, it, it, then in that way, that's what she's doing the whole time, is like unpacking the ways that people are behaving. And she's really trying... It's her... She doesn't know much about the father of the child who died, so she's using his friend to try and figure out information about him. So she's constantly looking at his social media even more than she actually sees him in person and trying to, like, unpick anything that she can figure out about the person. Mm. Um, but then that's even more to an extent of a false, fake yeah. depiction of a life that is so far from the truth of it. So, Absolutely. And I found that really fascinating, that aspect of your book where she is... She's, she's stalking the best friend of the man who died, as if he's her crush, you know, and it's like she's projecting a crush that she had onto the best friend, but then the crush also, like, she didn't really know Pat, did she? So it's like oh, she yeah. was projecting something onto that. It was really quite fascinating. Yeah. Was that something that you were kind of building deliberately or...? Not at all, and it mm. actually... Um the character of Travis came up the most naturally out of everything mm. in the book. Everything else I kind of knew where I was going. I always knew how it was going to end. Lots of people hate the ending, but <laughs> I wanted to go there and I did. Um, but then Travis just kept popping up in times where, like, inspiration struck more than yeah. I was planning. And, wow. and then it was very, um, as you mentioned earlier, I was shortlisted for a prize. So I was using the mm. submission deadline of that to get my draft done and about, I think it was only about a week before it was due, I changed, not the ending, but about the three-quarter point because I finally realised why I was so obsessed with Travis the whole time and that oh. he, the central tension of the book is actually between her and him and yeah. I hadn't realised that for a long time. Oh, that is really fascinating, yeah. yeah. And I guess that he had a real relationship with Pat and she had an imagined one, so there's that tension, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I love it when you learn something in a conversation <laughs> like this. <laughs> um, Alice, I really wanted to get to... I'm going to, um, to ask you about Karuna's mother in 100 Days because it's such a... like The portrait of her is so unsympathetic at first and in a way it remains so, but um, like in in the sense that there are unsympathetic details. She's a hard person. She'd be a hard person to, to have as a mother, I imagine. But it's also a really authentic representation of how trauma and deprivation can shape someone and their ability or method of expressing love. And I think that character's also really admirable and you get to know um, what's beneath some of her behaviour. Um, and I wonder if you can just talk a bit about your very complex portrait of Karuna's mother and their relationship. Oh, yeah, of course, Joe. Thank you for asking about that. The mother is one of the most complex figures in this book mm. and in many ways she's based on a lot of aunties and a lot of um, my own mother, a lot of my friends' mothers uh, with whom we grew up. They, they were very tough, very hard women 
who'd been through war, been through starvation. One of my best friend's mothers had um, tried to get on a refugee boat seven or eight times. Every time she was caught, the Vietnamese authorities would drag her back and lock her in jail. Now, unfortunately for my friend, she was a baby at that time, so she spent the first couple of years of her life just in and out of jail. You know, that was her childhood. Um, and so her mother, you know, kept her so close that when they came to Australia um, as a, a duo, there was two of them, they were very, very close. Um, and when I met her, she was still sharing the same bed as her mother because her mother was scared to sleep alone. Our life was the frightening prospect that, you know, this person who had accompanied you your whole life. And so that was an extreme form of control, but it was mm. also incredible love because mm. um, her mother had a very specific idea of femininity but then when my friend got a job as an engineer um, and she had to drive 45 minutes to work in this factory, this uh, as an engineer's factory, her mother, who couldn't drive, couldn't read, couldn't write, would sit in the car with her two months before she started her job and they'd go backwards and forwards every two or three days so that she familiarised herself with that route and not get into a car crash. So that that's a, a level of love um, that you you kind of improvise. If you can't read, if you can't write, if this is not a world that accommodates you as an immigrant woman with, you know, barely any English skills, uh, your children become your life. And that's what's happened with Karuna's mother mm. uh, towards the daughter. There's also all these other interesting factors because Karuna is half Australian, half white Australian. So if you come from a country that's been colonised, like the Philippines or Cambodia, you idealise certain traits um, mm. of your children. And I see my parents do this all the time. It's quite sad, you know. When my daughter was born, my dad looked her and, oh, she's really dark, isn't she? I said, she looks like me, you know, she's <laughs> Chinese. You know, and he was worried about her being dark and he didn't worry about my sons. And so there's this colourism at play as well. Yeah, so, so life is uh, very tricky for a migrant mother-daughter relationship to the point where when I read some Goodreads reviews, um, some reviewers were divided between two camps and, and some people will say, this book is not for teenagers because it's about emotional abuse and if teenagers read it, they will think that it's okay for someone if you say that you love them. So there's a fine line there. <laughs> Wow, that's so interesting, and not just because you've revealed that you actually read your Goodreads reviews, Alice. <laughs> um, I, I love because they're honest. No they one are. lies in them. So I really appreciate everyone who writes, um, mm. particularly the critical reviews, because mm. you learn a lot as an author when yeah. those reviews. You know. Absolutely. You know, you're a brave woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, God, there's... There's so much um, about race and class and um, so many just... Your book is just knitted with just these little telling details um, uh, to do with all of that. Like, you know, there's... It's obviously set in the, the 80s. Um, I figured out that, you know, there's references yes. to, <laughs> to Long Duck Dong <laughs> from uh, the Molly Ringwald <laughs> film. Um, there's, you know, people asking Karina about the origins of her name to find out where she's from, thinking they're being sneaky and she always knows it. Um, and, you know, there's this... Uh, a place that Alice's mother's 
Alice's mother works two um, jobs, as I'd mentioned before, and one of them's a restaurant called Siamese Please, where the waitresses are Chinese and Vietnamese girls who wear Thai sarong dresses. I mean, just so many little details like that um, of just insidious, you know, class and race things. And, um, and then that other added layer that you spoke about before with, you know, um, uh, I guess, in race judgments or issues within, like, I guess, within the, co the communities or, you know, like, you know, praising um, the daughter for being whiter and things like that. So, um, and I, I thought it was really interesting. Your book is also full of, it's a very different world, but you're also, it's also full of really vivid details about that world and the, um, the internal politics and uh, of that world. Um, and I guess uh, I'm curious with both of you about how you, um, how you built those worlds uh, from those details. Um, maybe if you could um, talk first, Ali. It's, um, well, I kind of just wrote it about the world that I was living in. And it's not, um, when you write your first book, people always love to know how autobiographical it is or they just assume that it's extremely autobiographical. And that can be quite frustrating in terms of I'm not like Eva in many ways mm. and my friends aren't just, she's not just based off my friends or whatever. But geographically, it was mm. very, very embedded in my real life. She lives on the street that I used to live in, in Thornbury, down the road from the KFC. There's yeah. the St George's <laughs> motor in there, which these are Melbourne kind of, they're not Melbourne landmarks, they're <laughs> places that are lived near my house. Um, yeah. So I just filled it with that. Um, I'm not an actor like she is, but I work in the theatre as a lighting technician, this is in my bio, so all those tiny things. And it's quite microscopic in its geography. Yeah. Um, and I actually wonder, I can't remember, but I wonder if that, I was doing the edits for this in 2020 um, when we were in stage four lockdown and I actually wonder if that influenced that in some way mm. because I was stuck in a five kilometre radius so <laughs> possibly my um, all of the very small local details came from that. That's where your brain was and that's yeah. what... Yeah. <laughs> and where well, my body I, was. Very <laughs> I, I know that a lot of people really loved that about your book and that, you know, that it is that very specific place that um, a lot of... You know, a lot of readers can I I imagine either it's been compared to Monkey Grip, for instance, the Helen Garner book, which is also, you know, microscopic details of um, in a share house in a North Melbourne. So, you know, I think... And I think sometimes when you set something in a place that's really recognisable and has these intimate details, it just m makes it come alive, you know, for any reader. So, yeah, I love that about it. Um, Alice, what about you with how you built your book with those details and particularly the class and race little micro observations? Oh, um, so a lot of them, uh, as, as Ali um, took experiences from her life and surroundings, so did I. Mm. I grew up with a lot of um, family and friends in those commission houses mm. and if you've never set foot inside them, you think they're horrible and they're terrible, they're so bad, but they're actually very beautiful if you come from a country where houses are cramped or we have rainstorms, they're like state-of-the-art apartments, you know, for, mm. for certain families, which is how my family saw it, my, my yeah. refugee family. They, they thought, wow, we've got this amazing apartment that is like um, 
the apartments they have in Hong Kong for wealthy people because they're <laughs> so huge, these housing mission houses. Um, and I did go to a school called Christ the King College, a, a Greek Catholic school, which I call Christ our Saviour in the book, so I haven't disguised it too well. And I did, um, this is a true story, I, I did walk home from school when I was about 14 or 15 in my Catholic school girl uniform, um, which had a skirt way below my knees, and a carload of hoons followed me, and they were older than my father. And they started yelling out stuff like, me love you long time, Ugh. which I know was a line from that full metal jacket, you know. Mm. <laughs> and this, um, this Vietnamese hooker says that to these American GIs. But as a, as a teenager, I had not watched that movie. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was scared. <laughs> so I just dashed um, to, to the nearest house and hoped that they were safe and knocked on their door and talked to this old lady for a while until the car drove off and I just ran home mm. and I never spoke a word of it to my parents because I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> and so those little details in the book um, is what you experience and I'm sure what a lot of young people experience these days living in suburbs like that but mm. they, they don't have a voice, you know. They won't tell their parents or their teachers. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, and I, th I actually did think it was great the way that um, you wrote about those housing commission flats too, that just as normal and, you know, because they are a place that are really, is really demonised and, um, you know, the, even the fact that they have a, a, a room that they don't use, <laughs> you know, a spare yes. room. <laughs> and because they think they don't... Um, yeah, the mother says, we don't need that, you know, um, because I think she really wants Karuna sleeping in the bed with her because she wants that closeness, which, of course, Karuna does not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now... In a moment, we are going to be asking for audience questions. So I'm going to ask one more question, but I'm just giving you some notice. Please just come up to the mic stand in the middle if you have a question, um, and I will call on you. Um, so I have so many more things I wanted to ask, but I'm going to just choose from them. Um, I'd like to maybe talk about unlike the idea of unlikable or likable narrators. Um, Ali, I know that you intended your narrator to be unlikable and softened her a bit in the publishing process. Um, and though she's still got spiky edges, um, like in her contempt a lot of the time for a boy who she's sleeping with, um, who likes her. And I wonder, how, how do you feel about that idea of the pressure to write likeable characters? Um, and, and, yeah, if you could just take us inside your thinking there a bit. Um, I guess my book fits kind of broadly under a category of books at the moment that are called like millennial novels and yeah. they're written by young, white, generally fairly privileged women who might roll around being sad and not really doing anything to help the world. Um, and a lot of the <laughs> those narrators, they're very self-effacing and shy and apologetic, um, quite like mm. there's a character called Annie in my book who's probably more typically the kind of narrator of a book. Um, and I just wanted to go against that. I wanted to mm. do, like, write a Holden Caulfield or just some <laughs> really obnoxious, <laughs> awful person. Um, I don't know why, just to, just to do... Yeah, because it's sort of this, like, there's always a shy girl who then has a bad girlfriend. That's, like, the, this thing that's come up, which is probably yeah. just because it's true to life or... Um, yeah, and then it was a good... I definitely agreed with my publisher. We needed to soften her a little bit so mm. that she wasn't completely unlikable. Um, but also, you know, that, like, you mentioned the relationship with the guy that she's sleeping with and 
how many people comment, like, she seems to genuinely find him, like, disgusting. <laughs> but I think that it's when she treats him very badly. And, I, mm. you know, that's such a common thing that happens. Um, again, more often in books like this, it's the man mm. treating that narrator badly. Yeah. But I think when someone treats someone badly in that, in a romantic um, interaction or relationship, it's not because they often set out to be like, I'm just going to be an asshole and treat mm. people with no respect. It's because they feel awful about themselves and mm. then having someone who likes you makes validates you and having sex with them probably makes you feel better about yourself for like five minutes. Yeah. And it's like a hit of that. Mm. And then you feel probably even worse because you're aware that you're treating this person badly. So um, it was just, I think, trying to unpack why people why people behave like that. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, and I think that idea of desire um, being sometimes not about the person, but about how that person makes you feel about yourself was so interesting and also something that's in your book, Alice, um, that Karuna, when she's thinking about why was I attracted to uh, Vincent, who was the father of her child, she said, she thinks, you know, that it was about how he made her feel as, sep as an individual separate from her mother. Um, was that... Was that something that you were interested in, Alice, that idea of, like, why people are... Yeah, ab about desire itself and how weird it is sometimes? Yeah, it is strange, isn't it? And yeah. sometimes um, as a teenager, what's so interesting, Joe, is a few days ago I visited a, a girls' school who were studying this book that mm. had very enlightened teachers who put this on the curriculum. And right. the relationship Karuna has with this young man I think that much about the dynamic. I, I mean, I, I, you know, relationships happen as they happen. Mm. Um, but they were discussing issues of consent because it turns out, and I didn't think about this because she's, this book is set in the 1980s, so mm. um, he's two years older than her. And so the girls were discussing whether as her, the tutors, you know, there's these homework um, oh. centres for, for kids who live below the commission flats where they can come and get tutored by older university students and still happens here in um, Melbourne mm. um, in the 1980s if you know that kind of relationship was no one blinked an eye mm. but these girls were discussing issues of consent and and whether he was a you know a predator um, yeah. and things like that which I've never even considered so um, your book doesn't become your own when you give it to the reader they they bring so much more to it, I think. <laughs> mm. Oh, I love that. And that's just, yeah, so interesting, that idea of when you put your book out into the world, you don't have control of it anymore and, you know, how people come to it with their own ideas and interpretations. So interesting. Um, I can see we have a question. Um, if you'd like to... Yes, well, my question is to Ali. Uh, what um, influence did your profession of being a theatrical writing technician have in writing a novel? How much influence was there in lighting up the characters or whatever uh, you came across? Thank you. That's a <laughs> lovely question. Um, so much. Um, one of the great things about it is that I have no control over what I'm working on, so I see things all the time that I would never usually buy a ticket to. And um, sometimes it's things that I don't enjoy, but even if it um, is something I don't enjoy, it's still... You just... We talk a lot about um, 
bubbles nowadays and how like if you mm. only hang out with people who are all have the same thoughts as you politically then you think the whole world's like you and you don't realize what's beyond your bubble and it's very true in terms of politics and voting and community but I also think with artistic inspiration mm. getting out of your bubble is so good mm. to just then realize what your bubble is um, absolutely yeah and then also just um I work on shows, like just before I came here, I was working on the ballet and I worked on that six nights a week for two weeks plus about half a week of rehearsals. So I probably saw the show about 20 times, um, which I, I have no idea how many times I read that book through, but that repetition of having to go back to something and still concentrate and not mm. just zone out and still find stuff in it helps as well. Great. Thank and just before we throw to the next question, I'd just love to direct a part of that to you too, Alice, which was... Um, inspiration because uh, I had been hoping to ask you about um, the way that your book is inspired and informed by fairy tales um, and poetry. Oh, um, and that was deliberate. I, I didn't mean to put in there as a wanky thing and <laughs> this young girl reads poetry and she reads uh, fairy tales. Um, but she's a young, she's on the, you know, she, she, um, is an emerging adult. She's only mm. 16, so watch grow up fairy tales, you know, at early Disney movies. But the thing with poetry is a lot of people assume that if you grow up uh, in the poorer suburbs, you don't care about poetry, you don't, stand it, you don't read it, you know, that you're, you're rough. Um, but a lot of um, my, my early forays into poetry were through these free book piles that were scattered at the library or at local community centres. And they, I was indiscriminate because my parents, um, my mum's illiterate and my, my, my father um, doesn't know very much <laughs> the Western canon of literature. So whatever was discarded, I picked up and read. And that's how I discovered poets like Judith Wright, who eventually, only in my 20s did I realise she was a great Australian poet, and, mm -hmm. and Walt Whitman, who um, uh, was easy to read as a teenager. Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's how Karuna comes to poetry as well, uh, mm -hmm. by accident, and it's life-changing for her, I think. Mm -hmm. No, I, I loved that, that element of it. Thank you for that. Um, uh, yes, we've got another question here. Um, my question was about women, um, women and the judgment of society in terms of motherhood, because they judge you if you're too young, but they mm. also judge you if you're too old and you don't have children. But I'm also studying STEM subjects, and I've been hearing that the men are really critical of the programs to fund women in STEM, because they just say, oh, they're just going to work for one to two years, and then they're just going to get pregnant. And so I just wanted to know like, um, your thoughts on what society is allowed to decide for women and, like, you know, why, they're, why they think they can make these judgments. Thank you. Sorry. Mm. Oh, don't say sorry. That's a great question. I feel like you should answer that, Jo. <laughs> what? <laughs> Me? <laughs> no, no, no. This is about you two. Nice try. Alice. <laughs> oh, Did you want to give that a go? question, Asuka. A big hello to you from Melbourne. <laughs> And I, I'm so glad you asked about STEM subjects. I, I'm not sure. I can only see the back of you. Um, and you might be Asian Australian like me. <laughs> so um, it's a great question. Um, and in, I'm sure Joe has experienced this as a mother and me. P 
people generally judge other more than they judge the dad. You know, if your child is messy, they, they look at you. Um, if you're working from home, you're, you take the most responsibility for the childcare. You know, just simple things like that. It's, it's assumed. Um, so it, it's something that I, I, don't, I don't have any answers to, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Jo? Oh, yeah, I guess it is one of those things like we were talking about with, you know, sometimes the best questions don't have um, particular answers either. Um, I think I, I can just say it's always changing in terms of how women are judged, I think, um, and things are getting better in terms of more acceptance of difference in, and more recognition of difference and different ways of parenting still a long way to go but as a parent of an autistic child um, I would say I definitely had some uh, dealing with judgment of your, your parenting and I have seen from others um, how it's it's getting getting better people are you know uh, understanding that different ways can also be valid that is my <laughs> um, I don't yeah Ali, do you have any input in terms of just how you've seen people judge motherhood or you don't have to have any? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a really good point that's made. Um, like I was saying before, my experience of judgment is that people saying like, oh, you know, there's not much yeah. time left. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, that, and that feels like this real judgment. And, you know, then like I hadn't really thought about it so much from the other perspective that then if you're young people are judging you as well so it is like I guess like mm. everything with women there's not really a way to escape it no it's hard to it's hard to yeah, do exactly the right thing as a woman well probably just as a person in the world but definitely yeah. as, a, as a mother and a woman in the world yes um we have another question hello um I wanted to ask so Ali you spoke about kind of writing out of Bukowski, almost in, like, your your work was... A f you didn't say this. <laughs> that it was almost a feminist response to it or it was your way of writing um, against it or alongside it, a kind of experiment. Were there other books that you might have been writing... Um, towards and in Alice's case um, were there books that you were writing um, in conversation with or out of? Thank you. Um, yes and not so much in the way that I was speaking before with the um, character and the obnoxiousness but I really wanted it to be a book that was read quite quickly and easily. Um, and sometimes, I don't know if I'm a bit sensitive, but sometimes review, people always emphasise it being an easy read and I think some people denigrate that as a mm. description, but mm. I was like, well, I wanted it to be an easy read. It was my intention. So I went back and I read a whole bunch of other books that I remembered reading in like one or two days or like just really quickly. Um, I returned to... Jennifer Downs' debut, Our Magic Hour, I returned to Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, I returned to the um, Eleanor Ferrante Neapolitan series, um, yeah, stuff like that. Mm. Great. Um, Alice, how about you? Was there any particular books or writers that influenced you, uh, other than, of course, the fairy tales and the poetry that came out? 
Oh, there, there were some books that um, I actually read because I, you know, when you have an idea for a book, you, you need to make sure it hasn't been done before. Otherwise, mm. you're just cutting down trees and wasting <laughs> wasting the environment. So I, I read books about teenagers who got pregnant and half of them were didactic, which was they had a lesson at the end, you shouldn't get pregnant, it's a big responsibility. And the other half um, were both are from my experience. So they were all um, young women who had a lot of support and mm. who had... Um, who, who had who had that and that kind of stuff, and um, had supportive partners. Quite a few of them, which is a beautiful mm. thing to see. These mm. teenage boys who stick around, but they were all also certain class. So they had parental support. They had um, the, the young men had support from their parents as well. So that's how it, it works. Uh, and I thought that there weren't that many about working class women, except for this one called a brief. Um, small cry or something by this Irish writer who wrote about this teenage um, pregnant mother who who, uh, you know, <laughs> who had a baby and I thought that was one of the most realistic depictions that I've read. Mm. Oh, thank you, Alice. That's really interesting. I might look that up. <laughs> uh, I think we have one more question. Um, thanks for a great session, both authors. Um, my question mainly is to um, Alice, though. You just talked, uh, and in, on the subject of judgment, being judgmental about, you know, whether you're too old or too young or too whatever. <laughs> I just wondered, in your case, Alice, has there been any pushback? Although I did hear you say your, ma your mum is Ill illiterate, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Any yes. pushback of, from um, people who've read your book to say... Was your mum like that? Oh, yes. In fact, my, my parents-in-law have asked me. That they think I've done a terrible thing writing about my mother. But it's, not, it's a work of fiction, so it's not really, not really my mother. My mother has um, certain, um, certain traits that are very similar to Karuna's mother. Mm. Um, my mother's one of um, eight kids. My father's one of ten. You know, they grew up in abject poverty in Cambodia, survived the aftermath of Vietnam War, survived the killing fields of Cambodia. Really traumatic backgrounds. Um, and, and told me that she loved me. She fed us, she clothed us, she worked um, till she got very sick to put us through school to get us to where she was. But she's to us in... Um, a way where it's commands or it's, you know, <laughs> lecturing us. And I get it. It's, it's my mum. And now, at the age of 41, my mum still speaks to me like that. And what's fascinating, talk about judgment. I've had um, some, some wonderful reviewers on Goodreads who actually take the mother's side. So this Japanese oh. reader re wrote a review and said, this teenage girl is so selfish and so <laughs> pathetic and so rude and so mean to her mother, and her mother is one of the most noble and fiercest characters I've ever read. You know? so, oh, wow. so depending on where you're, these like different. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I, look, I think I think that uh, closing it on how complex and, and interesting uh, that mother is is probably a good way to end. Um, thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for the great questions. Um, I will just remind you that these two excellent books are for sale over in the book tent and Ali will be signing books um, outside of the book tent afterwards. Um, so huge thanks to Ali and to Alice and thank you for coming.
Thank you. And thank you so much, Joe, for being a wonderful yes, thank you. host of this session. <laughs> thank you. Mwah. <laughs>